Hello, and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer for Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And today we're honored to be with Dr. Lee Erickson. Dr. Erickson, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and give us a little bit of your background? Sure. So I'm a primary care physician, a family medicine doctor, um, and never really thought I'd be doing this for a living when I was finishing up residency, but lucked into it, fell into it accidentally more than 20 years ago when I got my first job as medical director of a practice that needed a lot of improving and um, got really interested in quality and patient safety and process improvement and design and have been doing that for the last couple of decades. Um, the end of July, I'll be starting a new role as the system chief quality officer for Wellforce, which is in the greater Boston area. Um, and before that, I was the deputy physician in chief for clinical operations at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, wow. And I've had you know, various improvement in patient safety and quality related jobs. You know, I was um, chief quality and patient safety officer at one of the hospitals for the University of Pennsylvania Health System and was their system associate CMO for performance improvement. So I've been doing this for a while and I really like it. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And once again, thank you for being here, uh, Dr. Erickson. And I'm <clears throat> talking about patient safety. You know, I um, I started practice in 1998, and then a couple of years after that, that's when the big "To Air Is Human" paper came out uh, by the Institute of Medicine, and you know, saying that we were killing 65 to 100 thousand people yeah. a year, and it really it really opened up everybody's eyes because up until that point, and, and maybe even continuing on, a lot of us we just assume. And, and the public assumes that when they go to a hospital that they are getting uh, safe care. And, and, you know, the data actually shows the difference, you know, it shows that that's not the case. And when it comes to patient safety, you know, I like to, you know, you look at Paul O'Neill when he took over Alcoa. Yeah. And I think at his first uh, address to the board of directors or to the stockholders, everybody, thought that he was going to talk about market share and earnings and things like that. And, and the first thing he talked about was, was patient safety. And that's what he, that's what he focused on. And in doing that, he found that all the other metrics kind of were pull, pulled up by that. And, and tell me a little bit about how that happens in medicine. Oh, it's, uh, it's really fundamental. You know, Paul O'Neill was such an, interesting and inspirational leader um, at the time you know i think a year or two after that to air human report came out i was actually working in southwestern pennsylvania as a physician in pittsburgh and paul o'neill and alcoa's headquarters were in pittsburgh and so mm -hmm. he had a profound influence on how healthcare thinks about safety and quality particularly mm -hmm. in southwestern pennsylvania um, and i think you know his his big points for us who were leaders in healthcare at the time were, you know, it's it's 
as much about the process of delivering care that will make it safer as it is about the culture. Um, and that you can't have really well-designed and continuously improving processes without a leadership culture that promotes transparency and safety. And so while we would all love to think when we become patients in a hospital or we drop our mom off you know, at the hospital that the care we're gonna get is best ever, those of us working in healthcare know, no matter how good we are, you know, how matter well-trained the doc and the nurse is, the stuff that trips us off is the bad work design. Um, and then the stuff that gets in the way of improving the work design is a punitive culture or a culture where it isn't safe to say, this isn't good enough, we could do better. Mm -hmm. yeah. So every time we've had a physician on the show, we, we like to understand how they got into this world of continuous improvement. Because like you were saying earlier, none of us kind of go into medicine thinking we're going to, you know, be in these roles. But, um, you know, a lot of us get drawn to it. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey? <laughs> Mine was like a real aha moment. So, you know, I, I finished residency in 1996. I joined a primary care, you know, family medicine faculty. and I had had experience as a resident doing these community oriented primary care projects. And so they're like, well, she knows how to like assess current state and do stuff. So we'll put her in charge of some of that kind of work. And I end up fairly quickly, you know, maybe two years after I finished residency, getting my arm twisted to be the medical director of one of our practices clinics. And I was reluctant to do it. You know, I'm still a young attending. I'm trying to learn how to take care of my patients and how to be an effective clinical teacher. And all of a sudden I find out I have to do these stinking performance improvement projects every six months for this joint commission. You know, I'm like, what? I was totally one of those doctors who were like, oh my God, the quality police are coming. Hide. I have more <laughs> stuff to do, right? Exactly. So mm -hmm. I didn't know it at the time, but the CEO of the system where I was working was a big fan of Toyota and Paul O'Neill's work in the Toyota production system. And so we had to do these projects using this thing called an A3, whatever the heck that was. And I'm hating it. And I have to run this team that's doing these A3 projects so we can prove to the Joint Commission we're doing you know, process improvement or whatever. And I'm at a meeting one night where other groups and other practices around the system are talking about what they are working on. And all the docs were in the back of the conference room. This is like pre-electronic records. We're all like catching up on our notes in the dark with stacks of charts, you know, under our chairs. There was a surgeon sitting next to me, I kid you not, was like leaning back in his chair, napping. And this nurse is telling a story of how they improved flow in the operating room, which we all knew was impossible. We'd been trying to fix it for 25 years. It was unsolvable. And at the end of her 20 minute talk, she goes, and now the OR runs on time, like 95% of the time. And the surgeon next to me, like his chair goes, woof, <laughs> on the floor. And he leans <laughs> over to me and goes, what'd she say? And I said, I think she said the OR's on time all the time now, you know? And he's like, that's crazy. So up his hand goes and he asks her to repeat it. And she says, you know, now we're on time 95%. And he's like, I'm really sorry. I kind of missed how you did it. Could you just tell me again really quick? And so the guy in charge of the meeting just made the decision to ditch the rest of the evening's agenda 
and the lights come on and she tells us the story again with like 50 or 60 of us in the room and we're all sitting there with our jaws hanging open going wait a minute this stuff works and so i got interested and started paying more attention to these projects i had to do and really started seeking out mentors and things i could read you know and this is really before like lean and six sigma were a thing in healthcare so there wasn't a lot out there but it became pretty clear very quickly because i did have some really gifted mentors that it does work this stuff does work and we took a practice that was very dysfunctional really poor staff morale and pretty unhappy patients and in about 18 months, completely turned it around from running in the red to running in the black. All the attendings started getting bigger bonus checks. Patients were kind of floored that when they came to check in, they were taken straight back to a room instead of waiting an hour. And the staff were way happier. Um, and it, for me, it was sort of like, a, it literally it was a career altering experience. You know, I was like, this is kind of fun. Um, it's, I think it's very similar to being a primary care doc, you know, where someone brings you an undiagnosed, undifferentiated problem, and I get to do the detective work to figure out what's wrong. And I think system redesign is similar. You know, you have an undiagnosed problem, you're not getting the result you want, or you have a serious safety event, and you get to do the detective work to figure out what went wrong. Um, and knowing, how to design better and how to do process improvement is sort of the treatment for those problems you diagnose. And so I, I love it. It's a lot of fun. So. Jake, maybe that's, maybe that's why I have so much difficulty because I don't like those un, as a surgeon. I like that appendicitis <laughs> or that free air under the diaphragm and you know, it's going to yeah. be a perforated ulcer. So you just get in there and fix it. You just yeah. want the answer. Right. Yep. You can just go in and cut it out. But I like the analogy with the patients. Um, you know, but sometimes you you figure out what the problem is and you have a solution and the solution is lifestyle modifications or something like that. I, I imagine in the quality and safety world it's it's pretty similar where sometimes you can have a solution but it's not an an easy sell to the people that you need to sell it to. How do you how do you work through those cases? Well, you know, it's not all that different if you really think about um, shared decision making with your patients. Your solutions on how to deliver healthcare better needs to be shared decision making with the people doing the delivering. You know, and so mm -hmm. there's a rule in process improvement. The people who are doing the process are the ones who need to redesign it, not me. Mm -hmm. um, you know. I'm the last person that should be coming into your operating room and telling you how to redesign the flow in your cases. You know, you know best how to do your surgical stuff. Um, you know, HF, it would be nuts for a family doctor to come in and tell you, you know, this is how you do your appendectomy better. I don't know. Sure, sure. I can come in and watch how you and your team are doing it and help you learn to see differently and mm -hmm. think about where in your process in the operating room you have some safety risks you know like if you rely on a human being to remember something at a particular step that's a place you really do need a double check to pause because we forget or we make pattern substitution errors 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, or if I see things that are wasteful in the lean sense, I can help you learn to see them and then brainstorm how you might get rid of them. Um, and so it's really about not telling them what to do and persuading them. Like, you know, we all know telling patients to change their lifestyle is really going to work great. Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but if you can participate with them to try some things that they might change in small increments, you might have some better luck. And so it's the same. You, you participate with the healthcare workers as you rethink how they do their job. And they should design it and test it themselves and decide what they're happy with. You you talked about you, you told that story where the surgeon was kind of tuned out and then all of a sudden his ears perked up and yeah. he's he listened and you know that's that's kind of how you know this podcast we're we're targeted toward physicians but you know one of the things that we want to do is try to get the physicians more engaged yeah. in that process and 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 you know I I've I've been that guy who uh, quality and process improvement that's that's for the quality department just let me work and I've and, had to wake them up at a few conferences. It's been, yeah, <laughs> you know, as I'm nodding off and yeah. checking my email or whatnot, but, but what are some strategies to get the physicians really engaged? And, and that, I think that's probably, you know, we as physicians, we probably know the work as well as anybody, but, but, Physicians who are rounding and they have busy offices and whatnot, trying to get them engaged in that process. What what are some strategies or what are some things that you've done yeah. to uh, help with that engagement? It's not easy, um, and I I honestly do believe one of the biggest barriers is how busy we are, mm. yeah. and especially after a year and a half of pandemic, we're exhausted. You know, and and another. Before that decade of terrible electronic medical record systems that are, you know, crushing us with busy work. I, I have come to believe over the years, if we don't buy some of their time, and I don't mean literally like buy it necessarily, but we've got to be able to find ways to get us all a little bit of slack time. You know, um, Don Berwick always likes to use that quote, everybody in healthcare has two jobs, take care of their patients and improve how they take care of their patients. Mm. Well, if you're going to do any job well, you need some time and resources to do it. And too frequently, we just pile onto the docks. Yeah, keep running at 110 miles an hour and do this improvement project or and participate in this safety initiative. We got to find ways to take some of the load off their plate if they're really going to participate. I totally agree with you. I mean, you, you gotta, we have to find some slack time that, yeah. that's not gonna hit us in the pocketbook. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if we want to be transparent and, okay. you know, I never, I never ever thought that I would say this, but the, I mean, the, the typical fee for service model that we have is you, you it's, it's a, it's a hindrance to that. And because, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying, Hey, I'd like you to, spend an hour a week maybe helping with this project and they're like you know that's or, that's or two hours a week they say, I, I can't do that that's yeah. that's that's affecting my bottom line yep yep yeah and so i've had the most success getting a lot of physicians on board when i can guarantee them some time to do it how that's done can vary because not a lot of health systems can afford to literally pay for physician time you know if i 
if I had my way, you know, and was going to approach a health system, you know, sort of with a big transformational sort of campaign on how we're going to improve care, I wouldn't ask anybody for the first couple of years to do projects to improve quality or safety. All I would do was ask them to do projects to make their day job easier. Just get rid of some of the waste, document how much you're getting rid of so that people have a real concrete sense of, I bought us all an extra 10 hours every week. Well, now there's time to work on some of this stuff. Um, I think the other thing for docs though is, you know, you'll hear all the time in change management stuff, like what's in it for me? You know, what's the whip? Mm -hmm. um, but I, oh, yeah. I have found too though, we we all kind of went to med school because we like science, you know, and we think like scientists and process improvement and and the countermeasures you need to put in place after a root cause analysis is really scientific method applied to how we do our work. And docs also love data for the most part. And so if you can help them understand the quality or the safety police aren't coming in to tell you how to do your job. Instead, they'll bring you resources so you can do some scientific experiments on how to do it better. And if you happen to work in an academic medical center, no improvement project should go unpublished. Um, you know, this kind of stuff can help build a resume. If you design your safety and quality improvement training programs right, we can all get CME for it. You know, there are a lot of other things that appeal to us as physicians. You know, I know in, in Pennsylvania, to get our state licenses renewed every two years, we have to do 12 hours of patient safety CME. Mm. Every improvement project in your healthcare system is patient safety CME. Mm. Give them the credit hours for that. You know, find ways to make their lives easier and you'll get more and more of them. You won't get all of us because some of us just don't like this stuff. That's okay. Sure. Um, but you'll get enough of us. Yeah. You know, you're, you're talking about academic medical centers and, and publishing. And, uh, you know, I saw on your, your profile that um, used to be heavily involved with residency programs. Are you including um, this sort of patient safety work and quality improvement into residency programs? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting thinking about physician. I don't like the phrase buy-in because it feels like you're trying to sell them something they might not want. Um, it, it has more to do with with real ownership and and participation and like feeling like this is mine a great way to get more docs into this is train them young because mm -hmm. medical students and residents love this stuff they're very interested in you know we haven't sort of beat it out of them yet with the burdens of ehrs and all the regulatory stuff that drive us nuts they're still young and eager and energetic and so i have found teaching med students and residents this stuff often then yields up attendings who keep doing it. Um, and residents can get their stuff presented at meetings and get their improvement projects published too. Why not start them off young? Do you think we're going to see more of that standardized in, in medical school curriculums? I do. Um, I, there are a couple of med schools that have really started to incorporate into their formal curriculum early on. 
Um, but with, you know, the ACGME requirements in their six competencies to do the practice-based learning and improvement and the systems-based practice, most residency programs now have to do something, at least lip service, to meet those competencies. So why not make it something good and worthwhile where they can look back when they're done and say, I actually did make something better. Because um, that's really energizing to adopt. You know, we love making people healthier. We love saving them from terrible illnesses. It's just as much fun to look back and say, man, and I made life easier for my whole practice, all of my colleagues, the whole department, you know, the whole hospital, whatever. It's it's pretty gratifying. Yeah, my uh, my oldest son, he just, uh, he's in medical school and he just started his <clears throat> third year rotations actually this Monday. And yeah. he's actually uh, started out in neurology and I was like, uh, Neurology, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> but, but all you know, of our he, neurologist listeners out there, I apologize. No, no, no. I, I <laughs> neurology is very, very important. But uh, it, he did call me and he said, uh, "Guess what my first patient was?" And I said, a "Stroke patient." He said, "No, he had a uh, patient with dry berry berry," and I was like, what? "My yes, yes." I was like, yeah. "My goodness, man!" I you know, I always read. Yeah. We always read about. Berry, berry, but I never, ever saw a case of that. Never, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I've, I've shared some of uh, some of my learnings with him, and uh, and he seemed real interested in it. Um, looking at your profile, you said you know you're a you're a lean six sigma black belt, and we talk about you talked about A threes, and and here at here at Baptist we use A threes, and we use you know strategic A threes and tactical A threes, and and we we have kata boards, but all of which I had to Google, you know, as soon as I got here as to what all of that meant. <laughs> yep, yep. That's right. And I've, I've, still I've, learning. I've, I've had to spend a lot of time learning as well and, and still have a lot to learn. But, you know, those are all tools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of industry or healthcare systems or hospitals, they think that the tool is, is the important thing when it's actually the culture yeah. uh, beh behind those tools. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, this whole belief that the tool will get you there, you know, the analogy I like to use when I'm trying to explain to people why it won't is consider a kindergarten student. Just because you taught her how to wrap her fingers around the pencil and write doesn't mean she's going to write a novel. You know, there's all the cultural references, the history, the years of practice with the language that you've got to get under your belt to be able to write a novel. Just handing her the pencil and showing her how to use the tool doesn't cut it. It's the same thing. You have to have principles and shared values as a healthcare organization, you know, that really begin first and foremost with respect for people not just for your patients and their families, but also all of the people that work in your health system. Because if you don't have that, you're just, you're done. You know, it's not gonna be safe to say anything if you don't respect your people. It also has to, you know, value transparency and embrace this idea of experimentation and iteration. People have to get comfortable with the idea that they're is no answer like, oh yeah, error into the diaphragm, there's a ruptured appendix, I know what to do. Mm -hmm. The answer is always, it depends. Um, and you can teach the generalizable principles, but the details of the answer is local. 
You know, it's like, think globally, act locally. It's very true for this kind of work. The other thing that I think many places miss besides the cultural beliefs are, I guess the next level, you know, above cultural values and shared beliefs are the artifacts of your culture. And we all think the tools are enough, but they're not, you know, we have to rethink what our management operating system is for a healthcare organization. And so to say, oh, we're gonna value transparency and respect our people and you know, create a culture of safety and continuous improvement. And we wanna empower you know, decision-making on the front lines and being a learning organization, all that you know, popular catchwords right now, doesn't mean squat if you're still gonna manage with your old fashioned command and control style of do what I say because I'm the boss um, or produce these results or else it doesn't mm -hmm. work because if things are improved through experimentation you don't know what the results are going to be ahead of time you can't make those promises without running your experiments and analyzing the data that you get back um, so it's it's much more than tools you know you begin with the a3 which is like giving that kindergartner a pencil then you teach her how to write some letters and start to spell words, which might be the equivalent of explaining the order of an A3 mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and how to fill things in. But man, there's a lot of depth to be learned as you practice that scientific thinking. And to do that well in an organization takes total commitment from top to bottom and back. And it's not how we've been organized. Speaking of, I guess, just that the, the top level, the high level, you know, in quality and safety, there's, you know, not just one or two things, but hundreds, maybe thousands of things that you can improve upon metrics that we see every day that we're graded on. How do you um, find what you need to focus on? Because, you know, most organizations, most people can only really do two or three things at one time well. Yep. That's really hard. Um... I don't know that I've seen any organization that's totally solved for that yet, because what we do in healthcare is so complex. Um, but I have seen some pretty good attempts at solving for it. And one of the ones I like a lot is a formal process for defining what your true north is as a system. You know, this is what we really want to get to and and they're aspirational like zero harm um and then thinking about how you might measure those things and structure it in a way that's flexible to be cascaded from the very top level of an organization all the way down and then couple the that kind of goal cascade with just four to six priorities and so I think one of the favorite ones I've ever worked under, we created, you know, a sort of Six Sigma GE style balance scorecard. It had six pillars on it and they were listed in order of priority. And so I still remember this like 20 years later, first was safety, second was quality, third was productivity, which is not what your CFO thinks productivity is. <laughs> it was really about, the efficiency of delivery, you know, how quickly could you get a task done? How 
long did you make an ER patient wait? You know, how behind is your OR schedule? They were metrics of ease of throughput for productivity. Fourth was the people, talent development. This really burned our CFO. Finance was fifth. <laughs> and sixth were metrics we created to track our sort of organizational transformation journey. So we had a rule. If a safety problem came up as we were doing our daily huddle, and we had a system of tiered daily huddles as part of a lean daily management system. If a safety problem was raised at any huddle, the rule was you had 24 hours to put a stopgap measure in place to prevent it from happening again. If there was a quality problem, you had 48. Productivity, we gave 72, and the rest didn't really have a time limit. And so it was an agreed upon overt rule. If there was a safety issue, everything else got tabled until you dealt with that in the first 24 hours. And that was a good way to kind of help narrow focus. But the other thing that was nice is, you know, I think one of our metrics under safety was um, employee injuries at the highest level. Mm. And the second, we only had two metrics per pillar, so there were 12 total. Mm -hmm. The second was um, any errors that reached a patient and caused any level of harm and we would just count them. We left it up to wherever the smallest unit of care delivery was at that system to decide what safety thing they wanted to measure. Because, you know, if, if a floor didn't have a problem with falls, why make them chase it down? Maybe they have an issue with clabsies. That's what they should focus on. Um, and so we let at the frontline granular level, let people choose what made sense to them locally, as long as they could make a case that it rolled up to that top level metric. And that way, no one was ever working on more than 12 things, which is still too many. Uh, but in the beginning, most places then were only working on three or four, you know, maybe the two quality and the two safety metrics and, and sometimes productivity if they were really good. And that was it. You you answered the question that I was going to ask about the timing of when when you needed to put a countermeasure in place. Yeah. And you know, we had we had Steven Spear on on this podcast a while back and in his book High Velocity Edge, yeah. you know, one of the characteristics of these high velocity organizations is swarming a problem. Mm -hmm. And you know, where you were when you were talking about these safety events, how what what did you count as a, a safety event? Do, do you, do, you know what I mean? I mean, what was it? Was it a sentinel event or was it? How, um... Yeah. So we thought about it in terms of level of harm rather than sentinel event or, you know, whatever other taxonomy naming system you want to come up with. We, um, and if I'm thinking back, we may have taken this page from the ISMP, you know, this medication safety folks, we assigned, I think it was letters to our med errors. And we just sort of use that same system for anything. If it got to a patient and caused any kind of harm at all, that's where we started. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we found over the years is we got better, you know, and we found we managed to eliminate things that were causing death or permanent disability 
relatively quickly, except for those really rare, like once in a career lifetime crazy events, we, we got rid of those. And so we just started working backwards. All right, the horrible ones are done. Now let's do the harm that required some medical intervention, but the patient was okay after we saved them. Get rid of those. And you just kind of keep working back down the, how close did it get to the patient mm-hmm. in terms of prioritizing and focus. Um, we did the same thing at another place where I was chief quality and patient safety officer. We um, came up with a triage algorithm for how we were going to respond to safety events and decided anything that was a sentinel event and any harm that reached the patient that required treatment or was worse, like permanent, mm-hmm. you had to do an RCA. And mm-hmm. there was no discussing, are we going to, are we done, you know, so you saved several days of time just saying, nope, it's on the algorithm, we're doing it. Um, because we were a system that had already been teaching frontlines how to do process improvement for a while, we created kind of a second level in this sort of triage that we called apparent cause analyses, where we had the physician and nurse or the, you know, clinical and administrative lead of an area, it was their responsibility to do almost like an RCA light, but it wouldn't involve the heavy hitters from the professional quality and safety staff and the process engineers and risk managers and the lawyers. They could just do it on their own. All of these were done on A3s. We did our RCAs on A3s. We did the apparent cause analyses on A3s. And then the last category was just do it. Like, we made a mistake with this med dose. We caught it before it even got close to the patient. And we actually know how it happened, so we'll just go fix it. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we triaged them. And it, it worked pretty well. Yeah. Oh, that, that's fascinating. You know, you've shared a lot of things uh, with us today that uh, that has going to help me on my journey. I, I really appreciate your time um, coming on. I know we're, we're winding down, but I was going to see if you had any you know, final thoughts or closing comments for our, our listeners out there? I guess the the one closing comment or final thought, which is, you know, how you guys even reached out to, you know, pick my brain today, is it is stop thinking of sort of your continuous process improvement or your, you know, quality journey as something separate from your patient safety journey. You know, if if you implement a good daily management system, that is your patient safety program. You yes. know, and that's what I loved about this, this system I worked in with that balanced scorecard with the six things where safety and quality were first, is it just became part of the way we ran the organization. So you didn't have to have these separate initiatives for patient safety or a, an initiative for this improvement project. It just was the way we were. Um, it is a leaner approach to doing this work, but it was, it made the burden less burdensome, you know? So. Well, Dr. Erickson, once again, thank you so much for being with us. You know, we could sit here and pick your brain all day, but uh, unfortunately we can't. But uh, one day we hope we'll hope that uh, we can have you back on the, on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks. It was really fun to talk to you guys. And it's always great to connect with folks who are doing this kind of work around the country and the world. And it's great what you guys are doing. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. And and thank you everybody to listening to Connecting the Dots. Remember, if you find the link in the show notes, you can take the CME survey and redeem your credit.
Thank you.